Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben from the Lean Blog. This is episode number 12, December 4th, 2006. Um, we'll jump right into it today. Our guest um, requires really no introduction, I assume, for this audience. I'm Jim Womack from the Lean Enterprise Institute, and after some recent trips that he took to China, we decided we would talk about the state of lean in China uh, based on his observations and discussions. Uh, it'll be a two-part podcast. Um, the second part will be released probably somewhere within the next week. You can stay tuned on the Lean blog or subscribe to the podcast through the Apple iTunes store. Um, one thing I will say about Jim's background, a lot of people um, – know him maybe as Dr. Jim Womack, but they don't realize that his PhD uh, is not in engineering or business, as a lot of us might assume. Uh, his PhD is actually in political science from MIT. Uh, back in 1982, his dissertation was on comparative industrial policy in the U.S., Germany, and Japan, which, of course, was a perfect lead into the machine that changed the world, and the rest is history. So it's great to have him here today, and I thank you for listening. Hope you'll come back again. Our guest again today is Jim Womack from the Lean Enterprise Institute. Jim, it's a real honor to have you with us today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm uh, honored to be here. Well, thank you. Um, I was hoping our topic today could be um, the state of lean in China and talking about not only, you know, is lean progressing within China? How should uh, people around the world competing with China uh, view that progress or, you know, what kind of impact does that have on our competition with China? Um, I understand you were over in China recently, so I was wondering if you could tell us about um, what you're seeing firsthand and, and what people are talking to you about in China. I've been going to uh, China actually for a long time. Mm -hmm. I uh, first went in 1984 on my honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I spent a month uh, going all over, uh, riding bicycles out in the country and uh, having a generally good time, and uh, then went back uh, after that to go look at actual manufacturing operations. Uh, my mm -hmm. wife made pretty clear we were not going to do any factory <laughs> tours on the honeymoon. Sure. I, I thought it was an okay <laughs> idea, but I guess it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and then in recent years, I've been going back uh, once a year. We have a lean institute uh, in China, uh, based oh, in Shanghai, okay. which if anybody's interested, you go to www.leanchina.org, okay. and uh, you can find out uh, what's uh, going on. So, therefore, I have a reason to go, and when I go, uh, I, I, I hate to go anywhere if I can't take a walk. Uh, let me do some gimba, please, and mm -hmm. just see uh, what's up. So that I've seen all kinds of things, uh, which, however, do not uh, sum up to any kind of valid database on exactly what the state of manufacture is in China. It's all, uh, you mm -hmm. know, just uh, snapshots. Well, sure. But what we do see, I think, is this, that um, the Chinese have gone from being, in some ways, sort of the world's biggest not even mass producers that when I first uh, started looking at Chinese factories more than 20 years ago, uh, they were not even mass producers, just mm -hmm. uh, staggering, uh, mind-boggling uh, inefficiency, where the whole point was job generation yeah. and control, because uh, your factory was also your home, was also the school for your kids, was also your doctor, so that uh, the whole system was set up as a control mechanism. Yeah. And the fact that they happened to be making a few tractors, well, so much the better. <laughs> Sure. So that's a tremendous uh, transition for them to go from a centrally planned, uh, make the party man happy mm -hmm. uh, stance, and by the way, create plenty of jobs, to the current stance where they are actually trying 
uh, to be globally competitive um, in, in a serious way, not just a hothouse, uh, cheap currency way, but trying to be globally competitive in a serious mm-hmm. way, but with a tremendous long history of uh, doing everything the wrong way, and even wronger than uh, those orthodox uh, mass producers <laughs> around here. Sure. So it's a tremendous leap on the management side. You know, technology is easy. Go buy some machines. Yeah. Uh, anybody can do that. Uh, management's hard. So that uh, from what I've seen, uh, there's a real um, struggle to figure out what uh, modern management, much, le- much less lean management, uh, actually is, and how you would go about doing it. So except for the cheap wage, um, you know, there really wouldn't be a whole lot that uh, I should think people around here, here being outside of China, uh, would be talking about, just in terms of fundamental manufacturing competence. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we do have the, the cheap wage, and so then that becomes a big issue. Sure. So talking about making that leap from, you know, massive waste to, to trying to run um, more like a business, I, I would imagine their introduction to uh, modern management came primarily from, uh, if you will, non-lean companies that entered China and, and brought management and business practices with them. Is that right? That's right. That uh, one channel is multinationals mm-hmm. that come in to run things. Second channel is entrepreneurs. Uh, I went out this time to look at a pencil factory and met uh, Andre the Pencil King, who is a foreign entrepreneur who is now the third largest maker of pencils in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy is uh, a lovely guy, uh, doesn't really know anything about manufacturing, is a uh, you know financially oriented sort of mm-hmm. fellow. And so uh, those folks at the pencil factory are learning a fair bit about uh, financial management, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not clear they're going to learn a whole lot uh, about modern best practice uh, actual operational management. So there are many conduits, uh, and then, of course, the uh, more forward-looking uh, state enterprises and the more forward-looking entrepreneurs are out in the world looking around. Uh, they can buy the same books that uh, we publish that anybody else can buy. Mm-hmm. They can read them and try to do something with them. So there are multiple learning paths. Uh, it is interesting that uh, as a, a sort of Toyota head uh, that there really has not been any significant uh, Toyota presence in China, that Toyota has a couple of joint ventures, but uh, there has not, to this point, I think, been serious uh, direct transmission of lean methods uh, via the Toyota mechanism mm-hmm. uh, the way we certainly had in the States. Yeah, at least not directly. Right. Uh, so when you walk the Gemba at a, a Chinese factory, um, what, what evidence do you see firsthand of um, either lean practices or, or lean thinking in terms of how they're, uh, how they're running their factories or how they're managing people? Well, again, with very isolated exceptions, not much. Yeah. Uh, that you can go through plant after plant with just amazing forward spending on capital equipment, just staggering amounts of machinery, uh, in many cases doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And you say, why'd you buy all this? And the answer is, well, we've got big plants. And that's interesting, but of course most people in a uh, rather more mature market economy don't buy capacity ahead of the market mm-hmm. was, if they yeah. can help it. So that you're just kind of scratching your head looking at all of this equipment sitting there, uh, which was uh, bought, uh, gosh, on what kind of a plan. But uh, there you see it. And then you see uh, management practices that are, you know, left over from the old uh, era that this was a command control top-down uh, society. Mm-hmm. And then you know, this goes all the way back to Mandarinism, right. where you basically wait to be told what to do. And, of course, we know in a mature lean system, uh, the whole idea is that people at every level uh, initiate uh, activity 
and uh, analyze the process and uh, you know go through an A3 exercise and say, mm-hmm. gee, what's the problem? What can we do about it? And you really don't see that, or at least yeah. I have not yet uh, seen that. You see some very energetic, very high-level managers. Mm-hmm. But when you go out on the gimbal, uh, you have folks who are basically standing there, uh, you know, asking to be told what to do. Uh, on my last trip, I saw a particularly ludicrous thing of a moving assembly line that had no product. And all the workers were at their workstations, and the line was cranking along. And about every 10 minutes, uh, something would come down the line for some of them to work on. Mm. And, uh, you know, in, in our world, uh, the world we're, whoever might be listening, that we're more familiar with, uh, most everybody would say, well, gee, if there's only something coming every 10 minutes, uh, why don't we go somewhere and do something else, like get something to drink? Sure. Uh, whereas these folks were quite uh, earnestly standing there just in the event that something happened to come down the line. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, look, there, there is a big, big transition here to go from uh, a rather traditional, uh, rather traditional, uh, an utterly orthodox top-down command control management uh, mentality to a proactive, uh, gosh, there's a problem, let me see what I can do about it mentality. And that's going to take quite a while. Sure. Now, you know, you talk about that top-down command control society. Um, I'm, I'm sure that would be very familiar to a lot of people in American manufacturing, you know, non-lean, you know, kind of traditional management um, approaches. Um, right. Right. Would probably be, uh, yep. would be, would be very familiar going over and, and trying to adapt to that. But, you know, when you talk about society or, or the culture, um, as much as you can generalize, uh, you know, people in the United States, for example, uh, for a long time made excuses whether that, you know, lean is something particular to the Japanese culture and mm-hmm. you know, we have all of our reasons why we can't do it here, which right. I, I think a lot of people have gotten past. Are, are there, do you get a sense, um, are, are there similar excuses, um, in, in China where they say, you know, this, just doesn't fit with our culture? Well, of course, there is a long and uh, really quite deep animosity between Japan and China. Mm-hmm. So that uh, I find myself in the odd position of uh, going to China to tell the Chinese that they should act like Japanese in Toyota City. Uh, yeah. And it's probably easier to hear that from me than it is to hear that from Japanese from Toyota City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's... Um, that's the way it is. Uh, I think uh, for those Americans who might be listening in, uh, the degree of uh, sort of cultural division across uh, East Asia uh, is really quite striking. And uh, you look at Korea, uh, the South versus uh, China, let's forget about the North, yeah. uh, Japan versus China, Vietnam versus China. Uh, there are really uh, a lot of mental barriers to learning. And it is uh, kind of funny how uh, you go to the States to learn how to behave like uh, Japanese in Toyota City, but that is, uh, is to a significant extent what's actually happening. Yeah. And uh, our China Institute is run by a wonderful uh, Chinese-American, Marcus Chow, who was at Delphi uh, for many, many years, mm-hmm. was the president of Delphi, China, and then decided to retire and take it on. And uh, Marcus, who is an American of Chinese origin speaking in Chinese, is uh, giving straight lectures on exactly how Toyota would do things. Mm-hmm. And it's really quite uh, interesting, even amusing, to be along uh, to see this, uh, you know, across the world and back uh, transmission of knowledge uh, in a way that then becomes uh, acceptable and uh, people can listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we were uh, on this side of the Pacific uh, you know, just kind of tied up in our underwear for quite a while, thinking that the Toyota thing was, quote, cultural. And by that, That's we right. meant either Japanese or we meant Toyota-specific. 
that uh, that could be either way. I mean, there's company culture and there's national culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my view, just a complete waste of time, and it took quite a lot of uh, proving at Georgetown and elsewhere to show, no, wait a minute, uh, this uh, could be a universal way to do things, just as mass production became a universal way, mm-hmm. that there are mass producers in China, there are mass producers in Russia, there are mass producers in America. So it's uh, it's kind of amazing how much time civilization wastes on uh, the inability to confuse the origin uh, of something from the essence. Mm-hmm. And uh, typically, uh, important essences are really not uh, national cultural things, but rather more mindsets that can be learned and that are uh, kind of higher level mindsets that uh, managers, uh, you know, what management is about is embracing some sort of uh, philosophy of management. You have to have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, pick one, please. And since you've got a choice, well, why not pick the best? That's where we are. Yeah, and you could hope maybe uh, that if, if modern management and, and, and if that was the mass production variety of modern management mm-hmm. um, hadn't taken such deep root in China. Um, you know, mm-hmm. We hear already about how there's mm-hmm. um, labor shortages in parts of the country, um, mm-hmm. pressures uh, pushing wages upward. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that right. yeah. if, if you will, the fat, dumb, and happy era maybe isn't as long mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as mass producers had in the United States. Does that give them more hope then uh, to, to to push some of those practices aside and, and adopt lean? Or you know, could you talk about that and you know what, what impact wage pressures might be having on Chinese companies looking at lean? Well, look, the forward-looking folks uh, realize that why put in place the wrong thing, particularly mm-hmm. when you're doing new investment. And there's a pretty widespread awareness that once you get bad habits in place, uh, it's just hard to uproot them. So that there is a generalized desire to go and immediately embrace the best management practices. Uh, but by the way, buying all of that uh, overspecified, overcapacitized uh, machinery is part of their view of embracing modern management practices as well. Mm-hmm. So you can end up in some pretty odd destinations with your desire to uh, embrace best practice. But there certainly is the widespread perception that uh, people tell you that, gosh, you know, uh, we could be General Motors or we could be Toyota. Guess we should be Toyota. You know, why uh, build a system that uh, is basically uh, in retreat everywhere uh, and put it in place uh, in our region? So there's certainly a desire amongst the um, more sophisticated senior management uh, to do the right thing. But that's very different from knowing what the right thing is or how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the hard parts. Uh, uh, the earnest desire to do the right thing, well, gosh, don't most of us have that most of the time, and yet look what we do. So, look, they're no different from the rest of us Mm -hmm. uh, in that regard, Uh, but there certainly is an intense desire uh, to build absolutely um, cutting-edge, state-of-the-art businesses and not just to live off low wages. Because, look, they certainly sense that this low-wage thing is Mm time-limited. And it's time-limited in two ways, that uh, either... Uh, the domestic economy moves in a direction where you have much higher wages, and, of course, they actually want that. Uh, they don't want to run a country where everybody works for peanuts and makes cheap products for Americans. Yeah. Uh, they would love to run a country where everybody works for wages at the American level and still manages to export uh, goods all over the world. But to do that, you have to be uh, very sophisticated, and you have to have some intellectual property, and you can't just be making commodities. And so they, they realized that this has been a sort of happy window mm-hmm. that uh, gave them a big leap and uh, jump-started the whole economy. But uh, that isn't going to last forever. And it can you know, come to end in two ways, that uh, wages, particularly on the coast, really do go up. But also, uh, in the next recession, watch out with regard to trade management. 
that, uh, you know, that the way the trading game works is that we have uh, relatively, um, um, well, we have periods where we head toward more and more uh, openness of trade that mm-hmm. tends to happen when economies are booming. And then right. when uh, autonomies hit the wall, uh, the first thing politicians in every country do is listen to locals who are losing their jobs and say, oh, my gosh, we've got to keep the foreigners out. Yeah. Well, Chinese aren't stupid. I mean, they understand the, a little bit about the states, but also anybody who's studied the history of trade knows that uh, the next down cycle uh, is the time of great risk. And I say that, by the way, myself, without any uh, particular enthusiasm. I, mean, I think mm-hmm. uh, openness is better. But uh, I also actually do have a Ph.D. in political science from MIT, which I'd be happy to show you sometime, uh, and uh, spent a lot of my uh, early career studying uh, government-industry relations, including trade policy. Mm, So, therefore, uh, I don't think there's anybody in China who thinks uh, naively that they can build a whole civilization based on selling cheap stuff to Americans, that at some point this train comes into the station, and then you better hope there's another train going out because of that one uh, mm-hmm. is probably not going to be going any further. Yeah, uh, it would be interesting to see over time, and we talk about all of that excess capacity. Um, mm-hmm. would, would they, when looking at either labor shortages or um, rising labor costs, would they be tempted mm-hmm. to look towards automation as being a panacea uh, as opposed to um, to lean not just from an efficiency standpoint but from all the, the classic reasons of employee involvement and continuous mm-hmm. improvement, mm-hmm. you know, um, in theory would drive them well, further. Well, look, but... uh, just buying kit, um, including buying consultants, uh, you know, buying machines, uh, buying whatever, uh, as a substitute for actually figuring out how to manage is uh, tempting to all managers at all places at all times. Uh, that, as I say, just uh, said in my uh, – little e-letter that I sent mm-hmm. around uh, recently that uh, managers will try anything hard uh, that doesn't work before they'll uh, try anything easy that doesn't work before they'll try anything hard that does. And the fact is that uh, management's hard. Uh, machinery uh, is easy. Uh, you get a catalog and you buy yourself some machinery. <laughs> right. So that, uh, sure, there might be some temptation as uh, wages go up to automate. Goodness gracious, we've uh, seen Toyota do a lot of automation over a long period of time that they typically are not as automated as a lot of other people. Uh, other people who are being soundly trounced by Toyota. Right. But uh, the fact is that uh, one of the rules of the world is that as labor becomes ever more expensive, uh, you do try to work harder and harder at saying, gosh, how can we just do this uh, with less labor with no more capital? And then at some point uh, there are situations where capital makes sense. But you know, do I expect uh, there to be a big boom in automation in China soon? And the answer is, well, sure, for chip making, uh, which just in the nature of it, uh, if you've been in a, in a fab, well, I mean, you know, it's totally automated. You can't see what they're working on. Mm-hmm. Don't think you or I are going to be much uh, use with tweezers. <laughs> so, therefore, uh, depending on what you're doing, there's going to be a lot of automation. I was, by the way, just in a fab in China, which was uh, just kind of amazing that uh, there must have been a billion dollars worth of kit. And as far as I could tell, no order book. And, again, just scratching mm-hmm. your head about, you know, who thought this up. Right. But, anyway... So, therefore, look, over the long term, sure, there's going to be more automation in China. Uh, but, look, we're now, and by the way, some of this is uh, a little bit of dreaming on. Uh, people are reporting that wages are rising on the coast. Well, for the commodity stuff, uh, you get on the bus and you go inland, mm-hmm. okay? They've still got about 700 million people who are out there on the farm not doing a whole lot. So that I think uh, be a little bit naive to think that wages are suddenly going to rise to uh, an American standard in a short period of time. 
uh, even in this country, uh, you know, there's still a wage gradient between North and South in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's been there for 200 years. So it's going to take a while before you get uh, wage uh, equilibrium. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the, where the price is really going up, which is kind of interesting, is management. That uh, it used to be you could go to China and hire a factory manager, teach him a little bit, and he was happy to run your factory for $5,000 a year. And now that factory manager says, well, gee, you know, I think, don't I get 100000 a year? Because that's what you pay as a kind of international, that's what you're paying this expat. Right. Um, so, therefore, it's interesting that uh, the people you talk to, um, you know, on the coast in China say that what's really zooming is manager wages. Mm-hmm. Because the, those folks are educated, they know how to uh, read the paper, they've seen what the expats are getting paid, sure. and say, so, well, wait a minute, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. So, therefore, you don't really uh, necessarily, uh, as you move inland, uh, it's uh, sort of more problematic whether you can find cheap management. Uh, certainly, you could find uh, cheap labor. Okay, and I mean, you talk about management being hard. I, you know, I, I guess a corollary to that would be being good at management is difficult, so then therefore that would be valued, and, and that's part of the, uh, the the pull upward then on the manager wages. That if you have right. good ones, you want to keep right. them. And, Absolutely, and it's true. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, what is more precious than a good manager? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, uh, the last year I've been expanding my business, and I've spent a tremendous amount of time looking for good <laughs> managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the most important thing I do. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, we, we, we've talked a lot about cost and efficiency so far, but you know, kind of turning our minds to quality. Um, mm-hmm. We talk about you know continuous pursuit of perfection, continuous improvement, or, or kaizen. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that is entering, um, if if any, the um, the manufacturing world in China? Um, have you talked to anybody where they they have whether it's in terms of kaizen events or, or really trying to? empower employees, anyone who's made progress in that area? Well, I think you'd have to look a long ways uh, to find very much. Uh, Look, it's very, very early days that there's such a leap from um, no factory to a factory. Uh, You go into a room full of people who previously were uh, walking along behind a uh, two-wheeled hand-controlled tractor and now suddenly are factory workers. Yeah. And to jump from that to uh, anybody want to do some Kaizen, um, how's about uh, eight sigma anybody? Um, you know, this, this is a big, big leap. Right. So I, I think you would uh, have to run your search party uh, night and day for quite a while before you found much uh, in the way of improvement activities that are actually directly engaging employees. Uh, when I was uh, at a state-owned industry, uh, last year, look at the plant, uh, they asked what I thought, and I said, well, uh, here's what I saw. I saw a staggering number of people uh, directly involved in production and producing very little, and I saw nobody at all involved in improving the process. Right. I didn't see a single person. I kept asking, you yeah. know, do you have improvement teams? You know, where are the industrial engineers? Mm-hmm. And uh, this plant, which was making uh, goods for military vehicles, looked like it had been there for 40 years. And it looked like nothing had changed in 40 years, mm-hmm. except uh, there was just constant fiddling. None of the equipment would run, and they had the techs uh, just kind of clamoring all over it, doing breakdown maintenance. Yeah, firefighting. So you said, yeah. gee, you know, this is really uh, the state of nature I'm looking at. And uh, that's a big, big leap from there to, uh, you know, everybody thinks part of their job is to improve, and you have, uh, you know, scheduled periodic improvement activities and so forth. That's That's a different world. Yeah. And I think you won't find uh, too many operations at this point that are in that world. Thanks for listening. 
This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.